Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to Merrick's Experts podcast. My name is Grzegorz Stets, and I'm a Merrick's analyst focusing on EU-China affairs. In today's episode, we will discuss the outcome of the 17 plus 1 China Central and Eastern Europe Summit and explore how does the relationship between China and Central and Eastern Europe fare in 2021. To quickly recap, the 17 plus 1 format got launched as 16 plus 1 initiative in 2012 to facilitate an avenue for boosting cooperation between China and 16 Central and Eastern European countries, most of them EU member states. The format has been controversial. Brussels and Western European capitals maintain that it undermines the European unity on China. Many Central and Eastern European capitals criticize its underperformance, whereas Beijing claims that 17 plus 1 is an example of successful cooperation between China and Europe. So against this complex backdrop, on February 9th, Central and Eastern European leaders met with President Xi Jinping for an online 17 plus 1 summit, which was different than usual in many ways. So what can the outcomes of this summit tell us about the future of the 17 plus 1 framework? Joining me to discuss this is Plamen Tonchev, who is the head of Asia unit at the Athens-based Institute of International Economic Relations. As a representative of the Institute, he is a founding member of the European Think Tank Network on China. In addition, he also sits on the EU chapter of the Council for Security Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Committee. And currently, Plamen is a European-China Policy Fellow at Merix. Plamen, thank you for joining us. Great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So before we dive deep into the discussion about the present and the future of the 17 plus 1, let's first discuss its past. That will hopefully provide us with some context to understand the China-Central and Eastern Europe relations. So, Plamen, what were China's assumptions and objectives back in 2012 when it proposed establishment of the then 16 plus 1 China-Central and Eastern Europe initiative? I suppose one of China's assumptions was that uh, because of the communist legacy of Central and Eastern Europe, countries across the region would endorse and would embrace China's socio-economic uh, development model, its form of government. And, of course, they expected that these countries would be dazzled by China's spectacular achievements in terms of its uh, economic development. They also expected that these countries, uh, being in need of infrastructure development, would embrace Chinese offers and it is true that at the beginning, back in 2012, when this initiative was launched, there was a, a fair amount of enthusiasm and high expectations. The thing is that over the next nine years, up to the last summit, there's uh, been quite a lot of evolution and there's been, what shall I say politely, there's been quite a lot of disillusionment because it turned out that China's initial assumptions were not so realistic. In fact, they turned out to be quite flawed. Yet another assumption made by Beijing, or rather yet another omission in China's uh, assumptions, was the fact that obviously Chinese decision makers misread some of the security concerns of Central and Eastern European countries, 
particularly in relation to next-door Russia. And this applies, uh, I would say, mostly to the Baltic republics, but also to Poland and even Romania in southeastern Europe. It looks like Chinese decision-makers did not take that into account. And the thing is that China cannot possibly be a security provider in the region, nor a security guarantor. This is why all these countries across Central and Eastern Europe would very much prefer to be under the US-led NATO security umbrella. Security is an area in which China cannot possibly play a major role. This is an omission in China's rationale and calculus that uh, Beijing has found out much later. And this is also one of the reasons why there's been you know, this sort of disillusionment and this cooling off between Central and Eastern European countries and China. But as you mentioned this disillusionment, do you think it's a fair assessment to say that Central and Eastern European countries were interested in China's offer for economic reasons only? I would say so. In fact, I would say that there were two things that Central and Eastern Europeans expected back in 2012. They expected an influx of Chinese investment, mostly in infrastructure and possibly in industry as well. And of course, they expected an substantively improved access to the huge Chinese market. But as it turned out, what the Chinese called investment was primarily Chinese loans to Chinese contractors in projects of Chinese interest and not really what we call investment, FDI, in, in the West and, and in Europe in particular. But if you look at figures announced by the Chinese Ministry of Commerce itself, it turns out that the uh, overall volume of Chinese FDI across 17 countries over a period of eight years, nearly nine years, reaches the unimpressive amount of $3.1 billion dollars. That's not much, is it? In fact, the vast majority of projects carried out by Chinese companies across Central and Eastern Europe based on Chinese loans, and these companies merely execute contracts. So this is not what we understand as investment, and this is not what Central and Eastern European countries expected. Yet another assumption on the part of the Central and Eastern European countries was that they would have improved access to the huge Chinese market. Everybody wants to have access to the Chinese market. That's quite legitimate and quite understandable. But the thing is that, again, based on a recent announcement by the Chinese authorities, the overall volume of trade between China and Central and Eastern Europe has now reached the amount of, what, $100 billion. And this was a target set for 2015, six years ago. Obviously, even trade was not as successful an area of cooperation between Central and Eastern Europe. And in nearly all the cases, Central and Eastern European countries have posted growing trade deficits. So this is yet another area of cooperation which has caused disillusionment rather than uh, thrill and uh, enthusiasm. So, in your view, is it then fair to say that both sides entered the cooperation based on flawed assumptions that didn't really reflect the reality? I think it is true that there were flawed assumptions on both sides. On the Chinese side, 
Beijing expected that you know this initiative would be uh, wholeheartedly embraced by Central and Eastern Europeans. And then on the uh, European side, it is true that Central and Eastern European countries had high expectations because of what we already discussed. They were hoping that they would attract Chinese investment and they would have improved access to the Chinese market. But I would say that th there's a qualitative difference between the two sides. I think that apart from some flawed assumptions on the Chinese side, there was also an element of disingenuity because when the Chinese side was talking about an influx of Chinese investment into Central and Eastern Europe, what the Chinese actually meant was mostly contracts financed by Chinese policy banks and executed by Chinese state-owned enterprises, not exactly investment. On the part of Central and Eastern European countries, we have to understand their point of view. Back in 2012, when this initiative, 16 plus 1 then, was launched, Europe was in the middle or rather still in the wake of the global financial crisis. And it certainly was in the middle of the Eurozone crisis, because you may remember that back then in 2012, there was this crisis within the Eurozone. There was talk of, of possible Brexit hovering. The specter of Brexit was hovering over the entire Eurozone. There was a lot of uh, what angst about the stability of European banks. There was even talk of a possible breakup of the Eurozone. So Central and Eastern European countries were anxious they might not have access to sufficient funding for the development of their infrastructure and industry. And this is where the Chinese offer came in. So I'm not saying that they were wrong, but they were probably uh, naive back then in 2012 in expecting that China was the source of FDI investment capital. And there seems to be one other miscalculation involved in founding of the initiative, and that is one related to perception of the framework in Western European capitals, in the EU institutions, or in Washington. So why has this initiative been so controversial? I think that if you look at things from the Western viewpoint, I would say that a lot of this apprehension, a lot of these fears actually made sense. And they were not entirely unwarranted, mostly because of specific positions of some Central and Eastern European countries on specific thorny issues. Let me remind you that back in 2016, right after the Hague ruling on the dispute between China and the Philippines in the South China Sea, at least three countries, and they are all members, EU member states, Hungary, Greece and Croatia, actually backed China on that very controversial issue. And let me also remind you that in 2017, a year later, Greece blocked an EU statement on the human rights in China. Uh, it's also true that all these uh, fears in, in Western European capitals and the United States were vindicated because of the obvious trend in erosion of EU and Western standards in a number of countries, not just in the Western Balkans, which are outside the EU, but also in EU member states. Let me remind you of the controversial project on the upgrading of the railway track between Belgrade and Budapest, 
you know that the Hungarian section of this uh, railway project was frozen after an investigation launched by the European Commission due to the lack of transparency. And interestingly, this new contract, because there is a new contract, it's been awarded to a controversial consortium and the respective law has now been classified for 10 years by the Hungarian government. There are very many controversial cases in, say, in Serbia or Bosnia, which have accepted the construction of coal-fired plants by Chinese companies, despite the concerns voiced by EU institutions. Look at Montenegro, which has signed this controversial contract with Chinese banks and contractors for the construction of a very costly highway, despite all the negative recommendations formulated in at least two feasibility studies commissioned by EU financing institutions. It is quite clear that legal and what uh, environmental and social standards of the EU are being downgraded across the area, across Central and Eastern Europe. And this is something that actually vindicates a lot of the fears and a lot of the apprehension in Western European capitals and the United States as well. Would you then say that it is justified to call Central and Eastern Europe a Trojan horse of China within the EU? I find that quite um, exaggerated and far-fetched. It is true that there have been very many controversial cases in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, but I think that one needs to understand where Central and Eastern European countries are coming from. I tried to explain the context back in 2012 when this initiative was launched. And it's also true that uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and particularly some parts of this area, this region, are lagging behind in terms of their either per capita income or indicators that relate to infrastructure development. They certainly need a massive amount of uh, finance and technical assistance so that they could improve their key indicators uh, that relate to socio-economic development. It is true that Eastern and Central Europe remain still behind Western Europe on a number of indicators. And this is a fact of life. Look at Germany. Germany is still struggling three decades after its reunification. It is still struggling with its own regional disparities between Western and Eastern lender, right? So th there's a very real gap between Western and Eastern Europe. I don't think we should blame Central and Eastern Europeans for alternative sources of finance to help improve their infrastructure and raising their living standards. So th this is the Central and Eastern European viewpoint that needs to be understood, and I would say it needs to be properly acknowledged by Western capitals and the United States. But at the same time, I think it would be inaccurate and, and unfair to call Central and Eastern Europeans Trojan horses or China's fifth column. Uh, in some cases, this may very well apply to, to specific countries. But I would say that by and large, Central and Eastern European countries have proven that, in fact, they remain loyal and committed to their Western partnerships. And this has now become quite clear because of the summit that uh, took place last week between China and Central and Eastern Europe. We saw a number of Central and Eastern European countries distance themselves from China. And we've seen over the past year or two, we've seen a number of these countries actually toe the line drawn by Western Europe 
by the EU and the United States. Uh, just one example will suffice. Uh, the majority of Central and Eastern European countries have now joined the US-led Clean Network, and five or six of them have even signed um, joint statements with the United States on keeping the so-called high-risk vendors away from their 5G networks. Before we get to the summit itself, I just want to ask you about one more important happening in the history of the format, which may shed some light on its nature. And I hope to get some expert insights from you on this one, especially. So the enlargement of 2019, when accession of Greece turned 16 plus one into 17 plus one. So why was Greece invited to join the format and why did it accept? I think that Greece was invited by China because Beijing wanted to score a political point. It wanted to demonstrate its clout over Central and Eastern Europe, including uh, its southernmost tip, Greece. The enlargement of 16 plus 1 with Greece's accession served uh, what I would call an optics logic. And of course, uh, the government in Athens was very happy to oblige because it had already made a number of goodwill gestures to Beijing previously. So it uh, made yet another one in April 2019 when Greece did join 16 plus 1. I think that one needs to understand the logic, the political logic of the previous Greek government, which was very anti-Western and anti-European. Uh, it was looking for powerful allies mostly to the east. In fact, it was um, in touch with Russia, China, of course, Iran, and even Venezuela, of all countries back then. Uh, so the, the decision to join the 16 plus one at Beijing's behest uh, should be understood and should be gauged within the framework of this political position of the Greek government back then. I don't think that the current Greek government, which is um, right of center, and uh, much more pro-Western, would have agreed to Greece's accession to 16 plus 1. Other than that, I can think of no compelling reason for Greece to join 16 plus 1 in, in 2019. What could it expect back then? Further Chinese investment beyond Costco's flagship project in the port of Piraeus? Athens and Beijing have their close bilateral relations, So Greece doesn't really need this regional format to seek further Chinese investment. Another consideration would have been taking Chinese loans through the original format. I don't think that Greece actually needs to seek Chinese loans uh, through uh, 17 plus 1. And even if it wanted to, Greece is saddled with such an exorbitant public debt to the tune of some 180% of the country's GDP back in 2019. So there's no way Greece could possibly turn to China for extra loans. So I can think of no reason why Greece joined 16 plus 1 back in 2019, apart from the one which I already highlighted, yet another political goodwill gesture to Beijing. Thank you. So all of that paints a relatively political, a little bit misplanned 
a picture of the 17 plus one. And that maybe brings us to the summit itself, the summit that took place on February 9th and was particular for multiple reasons. For example, it was held online for the first time. China was represented by President Xi Jinping for the first time in this format. And there were also unprecedented issues related to representation of Central Eastern European states. So, Plamen, can you give us an overview of this summit and explain why was it so special? It was indeed a, a spectacular summit in many ways, because uh, it was unprecedented. Um, not just the summit itself, but the run-up to the summit revealed um, high levels of tension, uh, disagreement, and I think it actually illustrated some of the flawed assumptions behind the format 16 plus 1 or 17 plus 1. I think that the fact that uh, a number of countries from Central and Eastern Europe were reluctant to take part, or at least to match the high level of representation set by Beijing, shows that a lot of the thrill has gone. I mean, the, the, the wave of enthusiasm back in 2012 is no longer there. That's quite clear. I think that there was a, a lot of arm twisting, mostly on Beijing's part, which Central and Eastern Europeans were not happy with. There were reports that some ambassadors were summoned by the Chinese Foreign Office the evening before the summit and were asked to provide clarification for what was seen by Beijing as a disrespectful attitude towards China's supreme leader because they did not want to have their presidents or prime ministers, heads of state, taking part in the summit. But apart from the, all the drama, as I call it, in run-up to the summit, the summit itself did not produce the same volume of, out of outputs and certainly not, was not marked by the same level of pomp, you know, which normally uh, accompanies these uh, China, Central these European summits. I think that the summit was unprecedented also because it did not produce guidelines, official guidelines. Rather, what came out was a rather short list of activities without the usual manifesto, which normally is out principles and, you know, pledges of uh, everlasting friendship between the China and the region. It was unprecedented and this is what made it spectacular in many ways. You mentioned the fact that China also faced problems with securing the representation of Central and Eastern European countries. And in the end, six countries were represented only in ranks of ministers, which for our listeners, a quick explanation that this amounts to lack of reciprocity as usual summits uh, include Chinese premier. But this one was even more striking in terms of lack of reciprocity as Chinese side was represented by President Xi Jinping. So what caused those multiple CE countries to make such a decision about their representation, in your view? I think that the summit last week did not come as a bolt in the blue. I think that there was a long process in the lead-up to the summit. There was a build-up of tension and, I would say, political energy. But it would be very interesting if we could go all the way back to 2012, when the whole initiative was launched, and then look at the evolution of the psychology of uh, Central and Eastern European countries. I would say that back in 2012, there was a wave of enthusiasm and high expectations. I would also say that by 2015, 2016, that was a fairly positive mood. But after that, 
there was a growing level of doubts whether the initial expectations could be met. I would say that by 2018, that's the Sofia summit, there was already there were some question marks and there was quite a bit of uh, disillusionment, as illustrated by the fact that Poland, I think, did not send its prime minister, but a vice premier of the government. And then 2020 was definitely an inflection point because of the pandemic, because of China's uh, mask diplomacy, because of China's um, wolf warrior diplomacy. There was clearly a deterioration in China's image across Central and Eastern Europe, if not globally. So I think that all these events built up an amount of negative energy that came to the surface during the, the summit last week. Thank you. And you already touched upon this issue that the outcomes were, let's say, less robust than usual. We normally get this um, this 17 plus 1 guidelines from this kind of summit, one which is a joint statement with robust political language included. And instead of that, this time we got very plain language action plan. So what was actually agreed upon and what can it tell us about the state in which 17 plus 1 finds itself right now? I would say one may have to look at what uh, the two sides um, pursued. Um, I would say that what came out of the, of the summit did not quite match Beijing's expectations because we have uh, indications that the initial draft of the so-called Beijing guidelines was much longer. What came out was Beijing list of activities rather than guidelines, and it was a much shorter text. Obviously, Beijing did not achieve what it expected. And this, again, leads me to the, the dilemma or the dichotomy between optics and substance. It became quite clear that, in fact, this summit uh, pursued uh, optics rather than substance, and substance was uh, definitely much more limited than what Beijing had initially expected. Well, on Beijing's side, of course, uh, they would say that China is going to import agricultural produce from Central and Eastern Europe over the next five years, uh, worth up to $170 billion. This is a depressive figure. Uh, it remains to be seen whether that target could be met because a number of other targets have not been met. Of course, there's been a reference to uh, a number of cultural activities. I think that cooperation between China and Central and Eastern Europe is becoming softer and softer. Uh, there's a very interesting reference to customs procedures and their simplification along the, the specific transport corridor that China is interested in from Piraeus through the Western Balkans, further north towards Budapest. But I will say that by and large, apart from the list of events and trade, of course, trade promotion in the area of uh, agri-food and agricultural development, uh, I would say that the outcomes are not really impressive. There's one more element which, is, which really stands out it is China's interest in promoting Chinese vaccines. And in fact, I think the Chinese uh, have made some further inroads in this area through their steady partnerships with uh, Hungary and Serbia. And it looks like there are some um, other countries interested in Chinese vaccines, possibly the Czech Republic, possibly North Macedonia, Montenegro, perhaps. 
and this has to do with the progress, or the rather slow progress, of inoculation programs in the rest of Europe. And to evaluate the outcomes in general, would you say that China has achieved its goal when it comes to optics, despite the fact of this uneven representation by Central and Eastern European countries? And at the same time, have Central and Eastern European countries got the concessions that they wanted from China? Or are those just promises that cannot really be treated at face value? I think the mere fact that this summit took place could be seen as a positive development from Beijing's point of view. Beijing wanted to score a political point. It wanted to demonstrate that it still has some clout across Central and Eastern Europe. Um, It possibly wanted to capitalize on the momentum of the comprehensive agreement on investment signed in principle between the EU and China. And I suppose that, of course, China wanted to use this summit to push for the use of Chinese vaccines. So, to a certain degree, uh, China did meet its objectives. At the same time, it's quite clear that China overplayed its hand. And I would say that President Xi uh, personally overplayed his hand. Uh, It looks like he has overestimated his personal weight. And this is why China had to, well, Chinese officials had to put on a brave face and swallow what they consider to be an insult, a sign of disrespect for the stature of China's supreme leader. It's also true that uh, the frosty relations between China and the Baltic Republics highlighted a trend of deterioration between China and the region at large. So I would say that looking at the pros and cons, the balance looks rather negative for China, It certainly isn't embraced in Central and Eastern Europe the way it used to back in 2012. And I would say that, uh, if I may put it uh, this way, a lot of water has run under the bridge. Thank you. So moving to the final segment of our conversation, let's talk about the takeaways from the summit in general and what can it tell us about the future of the 17 plus one grouping. So you mentioned that the format has been pretty much driven on many occasions by bilateral relations, by China's relationship with specific countries. At the same time, we could see a clear divide appearing with uh, between Baltic countries uh, being in the camp of sending ministers and Balkan states that have been very active in terms of relationship with China. So when it comes to the future scenarios of the platform, what do you think we can expect? Uh, can we expect perhaps the platform toning down or maybe seeing an adjustment in the number of participants? What would be your take? Well, first of all, I quite agree that there's an emerging north-south divide. I think that's true. It's becoming obvious that countries in in the northern part of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, the Baltic Republics, possibly Poland, are becoming a lot more cautious, if not, um, shall I say, hostile, certainly not happy with the platform, the format. Uh, Whereas down south, in southeastern Europe, China's image is much better. I would say the level of acceptance of Chinese initiatives is much higher. And it's not just Serbia. There are other countries in the region which are willing to work with China and still pinning some hopes on China. So the divide is quite clear. On the day after of the format, I think that if one considers scenarios, 
the scenario of dissolution is quite far-fetched. I would say that it would be a huge loss, a loss of face for China, if 17 plus 1 dissolved, which is why I consider it quite unlikely. I think that the Chinese would never allow this to happen. I assume that this summit, the last summit, will cause some soul-searching in Beijing, of course, behind closed doors. I assume that there will be quite a bit of self-criticism in Beijing, which is a standard exercise in the Marxist-Leninist-Maoist tradition anyway. I assume that some heads may roll down the corridor, but in the end, I'm sure that China will try to ingratiate Central and Eastern European countries and will try to come up with some improved offers meant to address Central and Eastern European grievances. I would say that there are various options. There's a range of options on what else could happen, but they all have a common denominator, and it is a larger degree of flexibility. For example, we may see the format relegated to a ministerial level, to various cooperation mechanisms, We may see the summits thinned out. They could be held once every two years. Participation could be rendered voluntary, depending on the key themes to be discussed every year. And perhaps some sub-regional formats could also be considered. For instance, Western Balkans plus one or Southeast Europe plus one. I think that we will definitely see a higher degree of flexibility. Referring also to the point that you made before about um, what the summit means or what it shows in terms of Central and Eastern Europe's commitment to its Western allies, um, especially thinking about the US here, because this was the line of reasoning that was coming from Beijing, that the low participation from a number of Central and Eastern European countries was an emanation of the uh, US influence in the region. But can we interpret the outcome of the summit through the lens of transatlanticism, or is that an oversimplification that doesn't give enough credit uh, for wider agency of Central and Eastern European countries? What would be your take? I think that U.S. pressure on Central and Eastern Europe is a fact. It's true that the United States has been um, very persistent in its attempts to um, lead this initiative known as the Clean Network. It is true that it was under US pressure that a number of countries have joined the Clean Network initiative. Um, The standoff between the United States and China on a global scale could not have left Central and Eastern Europe out of the fray. Of course, they would take into account the bitterness um, or the animosity between the United States and China. And again, because of all the security concerns across the region, it is true that Central and Eastern European countries will have to take US presence and the US-led security umbrella into account. At the same time, I think it would be inaccurate and then unfair to ignore all the failures and all the flawed assumptions that I presented previously. Uh, It is true that China has not lived up to its initial pledges. It certainly has not lived up to its expectations. And it's also true that there was an element of disingenuity in China's initial pledges to the region. One needs to to take into consideration the agency of Central and Eastern Europeans, because it's quite legitimate that they want to have higher living standards 
And of course, they were hoping that they could get some investment capital from China. But unless these pledges are met, then I think that Central and Eastern Europeans were quite right to react the way they did. Now, as a final question to wrap up our discussion, what would you recommend for the EU to do to engage Central and Eastern European member states in the context of the 17 plus one? Can it perhaps serve as an instrument for tackling China's influence in the Balkans? Or perhaps there are some other ways in which Brussels could try to get involved in a constructive way? I think that the EU certainly has not lived up to the circumstances in the Western Balkans. I think the drama of this region is that after the Dayton Agreement back in uh, 95, the region somehow disappeared. It went out of the spotlight for about two decades. It was only in the middle of the previous decade that we had the Berlin process launched and the EU again tried to engage with the Western Balkans and provide this sub-region with a European perspective. Uh, But I think that the EU will definitely have to um, double down on its efforts to engage the region and ensure its European perspective. And there are very many delays which certainly are not helpful. And it is in this void that China actually steps into. On some other countries further north, EU member states which tend to use the China card in their relations with Brussels. I think this is an internal EU dynamic, which is very complex. But I think that EU institutions and leading EU countries will have to uh, to be more persistent and they will have to uh, certainly insist on some core values that keep the European Union together. Lamen, thank you for all the observations and for your expert analysis of the 17 plus 1. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org. <laughs>